2022 is a year that's going to be remembered as an extraordinary one for many reasons. I'm Farmers Guardian Head of Business Alex Black and on this week's episode of Over the Farm Gates I'm taking a look back at the year. Don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. Now as I record this I've got multiple editions of Farmers Guardian here in front of me Uh, and the one that catches attention first of all is the March 4th edition where we're talking about the occupation of Ukraine. That's really been the defining story of 2022, impacting everything from global food supplies to the Ukrainian farmers on the ground and affecting all of our farms here in the UK through soaring inflation. Moving further on into the summer, the heat wave was the topic of conversation. Uh, and our, our August 12th edition was talking about feeling the heat as the dry weather broke records into September and we had the death of Queen Elizabeth II and farming paid its respects in our September the 16th edition to a great supporter of British agriculture. That came in the midst of some political instability that saw us have three Prime Ministers. So I've got here with me today Tom Bradshaw from the NFU and Tom's going to be talking through some of the events of the year. Yeah, Tom, taking a look back at at 2022, which I think has been a pretty extraordinary year for for many different reasons. So firstly, I'm looking back here, I'll show it you. So this is January January 2022's Farmer's Guardian. Uh, This is January 14th, so it's almost directly a year ago. I mean... Can you can you remember back to, to January since everything that's changed since then? Um, I think we're still talking about the Elm scheme there on the front of, of that. But, you know, take me through a little bit about the beginning of the year and, you know, what was on the agenda then. Well, if you go back to that headline there, Alex, I'm sure that that was about the previous uh, Secretary of State, um, but one, uh, George Eustace, who announced at the uh, uh, Oxford Farming Conference online because of COVID, um, that the budget was going to be split a third, a third, a third between the SFI, the landscape, the local nature recovery and the landscape recovery. Uh, and I think I did some maths on the back of that. We suggested that if you were putting um, less than 5% of the land into um, the landscape recovery schemes, then you're going to end up with payments of about £2,500 a hectare, which is something we simply could not support. It was incentivizing land being taken completely out of production. But it's also questionable whether or not there would be value for the value for money for the taxpayer when you're delivering those substantial annual payments. So you know, we we really we wanted to see 65% plus of the budget going into the SFI um, and then less than 10% going into landscape recovery. And so we were really shocked when that original split came out. I mean, it was very rapidly said that it would be reviewed and that it would be um, demand led, which meant that really, if you design the scheme well and there is demand in the SFI, then clearly more budget would go there. But if you design a scheme which doesn't work, then it's still questionable what that budget split split looks like. And, you know, I'm not going to go through entirely in a chronological order, but I will take a dip into some of these additions and that. But you you mentioned there about it being the um, Secretary of State, but one. I mean, that political chaos, I suppose, that we saw, particularly in the autumn. I mean, how has that felt as as a farmer and, you know, at the NFU? I mean, the revolving doors of government has, is far from a joke, Alex, but, you know, it has become, they've become a laughing stock. You know, it really, I think it's amazing when we look back just and what an impact it's going to have had on plans for farming businesses. Um, you know, I've had a lot of engagement with the Environment Agency over the past year, particularly around water abstraction in East Anglia. 
And we've been trying to get ministers out to, to these farm businesses that are struggling to get uh, planning permission through for reservoirs. And yet the Environment Agency carried on working at pace. They didn't really stop. Um, so ministers weren't, weren't engaged. They didn't know if they were in post or who was going to be covering those portfolios. So, but yet their agencies carried on working alongside. And so it's made it very, very difficult. And actually, uh, before Christmas, it felt like it had really come to a head that uh, planning plans were going ahead to take away farmers' uh, abstraction licenses before they had new licenses, before they'd been given planning permissions for their reservoirs. And yet we still haven't been able to get ministerial visits out to those businesses. And, and it really does feel like it's completely unacceptable that, that we've been expected to, to sort of walk through treacle um, while there hasn't been any, um, you know, the, the agencies haven't had to slow down the way that they've been developing um, their plans. And yeah, it's been very, very frustrating, very challenging to deal with government, continually briefing new ministers and secretaries of state. And it's really, I think it's meant that any difficult decisions have, have taken even longer uh, to get through government and so yeah it's it's been a an incredible period in time that um, you know really so much focus is on the ukraine crisis and, and and that has had a huge huge impact on the whole of the agricultural sector uh and those farms over there i mean across the track we feel tragically for those that have been closely involved with it over in the ukraine because it really is a terrible terrible situation but over here there's been individual businesses that have, will have felt some real pain and because of government's uh, lack of ability to deliver policy and yeah, that brings us on nicely, I suppose, to, to February and, and March time when, you know, uh, the, the invasion of, of Ukraine um, and the impact of that. So, I mean, just take us back to, you know, yourselves at the NFU and that in February when I think, you know, war in Europe's a bit of something that, you know, nobody would have ever expected a few years ago, certainly. I mean, take, take us back to that time and, and what you were thinking and then the impacts that it had, I suppose, immediately. Yeah, so I mean, it was in, in the build-up to our energy conference, we were debating and Manette was sort of wondering whether she should mention Ukraine or not. And then it, it felt more and more like it was going to become a, a subject which needed discussing. So she referenced it in her opening speech. And then suddenly, two days later, um, Europe was at war. And, and for Putin to invade the Ukraine in the way that it has that he has done, you know, is something that um, you know we take our, our safety and our peace for granted. And I think Europe had taken peace for granted, uh, and none of us really recognised the the impacts that it was going to have. And uh, you know, we'd already seen energy prices rising reasonably significantly on, on the uncertainty. But what happened to fertilizer prices in the immediate aftermath? They, they went to a thousand pounds a ton uh, if you could get hold of it, if you could get it delivered onto farm. Uh, grain prices eventually went up to 400 pounds a ton. Um, and I remember doing an interview the day after the invasion and saying that the UK had a, a moral imperative to do everything it could to produce all of the food that we could here to minimize our demands on the rest of the world. And it was always the developing nations of um, South of Africa uh, and some of the Middle Eastern countries that import a lot of wheat out of the Black Sea that we were really knew would be at the forefront of this crisis. But if we produce less food here in the UK and we import from other, for, or we rely on importing from other places around the world, then we're displacing those imports from countries that really can't afford it. And so, you know, I, I still don't think we've necessarily taken great sort of grab the ball by the horns and made sure that we are maximizing productivity here and production. And, and certainly we've got a fertilizer plant. Uh, which isn't producing fertilizer, another one which is only using imported ammonia uh, to produce fertilizer. And at a time where it feels like um, globally fertilizer is one of the limiting factors, that is something which you know is quite difficult to comprehend. I don't think it's going to change immediately, but it is certainly a, a real challenge. 
Um, and the impacts that had on the intensive sectors was was quite unprecedented. You know, the peak, peak sector was already in crisis, but when those feed costs rose in the way they did, it, and it, it has been very, very challenging. And the consolidation we've seen in the peak sector um, with the integrators now uh, having a much bigger percentage of the UK herd is something that uh, yeah, none of us would have predicted before the start of 2020. Uh, we, we did foresee the issues within the egg sector and, and the challenges um, for the free range sector. Um, and yeah, a lot of that, yes, is it, feed cost related and the inability to make sure that farmers are receiving fair prices for all the risk that they are taking on board. Um, but I and the other issue which has critically impacted the poultry sector is clearly avian influenza. And uh, you're probably going to move on to that much later. But uh, you know, it, it's been one of those compound impacts, which has just had a huge, huge challenge. And as we sit here today, you know, there's Ukrainian farms that have been bombed, that bombed. There's Ukrainian farmers that haven't been able to plant their crops for this autumn. There's the Ukrainian farmers that are involved in the war fighting. And you know, we we really have so much to be thankful for in this country that we haven't been impacted in the same way that any of those businesses have. Yes, we've faced huge inflationary pressures and, and putting real businesses under real financial pressure. Um, but that's a different level of pressure to those that are really on the front line of the war and having to deal with it as a day-to-day crisis. Yes, of course. Um, and I think maybe if we, you know, can, can look again there at the pig sector, and I know obviously you work close with your colleagues at the NFU with the National Pig Association as well. I mean, it seems to have been sort of crisis after crisis for the pig sector, you know, starting before 2022, but certainly in throughout the year in 2022 it does and i mean even now i'm not sure that there's uh, an end in sight and you know, some of this goes back to um imports uh, coming in from countries that are producing to different standards to us here and many would say lower standards cheaper cost of production um that is undermining the the pork market we know that there is going to be a tightness um coming in the number of pigs available but yeah that still seems to get filled with imports and so you know that is a for, for our members on the ground that are directly involved in this, I think that for them, that you know, we don't mind producing to standards, provided that we're not undermined by products which are being produced to, a, to lesser standards and being imported to compete against it. And that's the huge challenge that we all face, and the pig sector is really facing you know, look, facing into that now. And I, I, I don't know what the you know, what the end point is because we, unless feed prices dramatically fall, the cost of production for pork is is going to remain very high. And whether there, there is the ability for the market to respond in the way it needs to, to make sure those farmers are able to make a profit, it's going to be very challenging. And um, there's a lot of anger within that sector, uh, particularly towards the supermarkets and the retailers um, for bringing in those imported products and for not rewarding uh, their businesses fairly. Um, but uh, you know, it is an incredibly challenging area and, and it's one that I wish there was an easy solution to, but I'm afraid that there really isn't. Um, it's been compounded by the labour issues and the um, slaughterhouses not being able to get the labour they require and the, and the uh, butchers and uh, that's compounded the problem but it's not the, the sole cause of the problem and uh, I guess one of our biggest asks as we're in 2023 is, is for transparency and fairness in the supply chain uh, and there's been a consultation within the pig sector uh, but several years ago there was a consultation or there was work done in the dairy contracts and we still haven't had that work published so you know, we really need to, to make sure that um, that, that farmers are able to, to compete in a fair and transparent marketplace. Uh, and that's something that we'll be continuing to work on in 2023 uh, and to make sure that the members uh, aren't, aren't facing unfair competition. Yeah, I think that's something, you know, like I say, I've been looking through these editions that keeps coming up 
again and again um, that we've been reporting on. I think we start in the start in the year in the in the business section talking about ASDA doing a U-turn on on supplying British beef, and then obviously all that you've mentioned there in the pig sector. We've got something here in the dairy dairy sector about supermarket contracts and the change in you know um, the relevance and the way that the supermarket contracts worked in the in the dairy sector, and then obviously we get on to um, later on in the year, we get onto the shortages of eggs on shelves and, you know, the worries about turkeys, uh, et cetera, in the run up to Christmas. I mean, just tell us a little bit about, you know, the egg shortages and, and the worries about Christmas supplies. Yeah, so I mean, many supermarkets, as we know, have been uh, running short on eggs through December. Um, and this is a, just a, an economic response. Uh, yes, some have been lost to avian influenza, but um, it, many farmers have decided not to restock because they simply can't see the rewards of, and, and the high, very high risk of, of restocking, particularly with avian, avian influenza. Um, you know, that's just compounded the risk and they've decided that there isn't a return to be had. So they've you know, voted with their feet. But it's tragic. There's something like eggs. Now, we take the safety of eggs absolutely for granted. You can eat an egg raw. You can eat it runny. You don't have to think twice about it. They're all completely salmonella free or lion code. And yet, when we started importing those Italian eggs, they came with a health warning from the Food Standards Agency, something that we have taken for granted as being completely safe. And yet, we suddenly are importing from Italy, and we're being told if you're elderly, if you're young, or if you're, um, you know, you've got other health issues, that you should make sure that the eggs are fully cooked. And I think that that's the sort of thing that the British food supply chain has delivered for our customers. We have delivered that that sort of. Um, uh, the, the safety elements, which are now completely taken for granted. And I, I, I guess it's a wake-up call. I hope it's been a wake-up call to our supply chains, uh, exactly what we are delivering for our British consumers and something that, that we must capitalise on as we move forward through 2023 to try and set up these sort of uh, resilient supply chains for the future. And at the heart of resilience is sustainability and profitability. Because if you're not a profitable business, then you can't invest for the future and, and you can't make sure that you are investing in all your productivity measures to make your, to keep your business competitive. And so I really think that we need to, to be absolutely focused on how we deliver those resilient supply chains. And with, a, with that comes a focus on profitability as well. And I know there's been warnings, you know, from yourselves at NFU about, you know, this the shortage that we saw in the egg sector, you know, potentially being repeated in the in the fruit and veg sector. Um, obviously, we've spoken about pork and, and turkeys. You know, I remember speaking to turkey farmers a few weeks ago saying, you know, they're not sure what they're going to do for, for next Christmas, for Christmas 2023, whether it's worth taking the risk on stocking the sheds there, there for them uh, as well. I mean, you know, what are you looking for in 2023? Is there a risk that we could see those shortages in those sectors as well? I mean, for the for the turkey sector, uh, it's either got to be something about comprehensive AI insurance, um, or we're probably going to see very, very few free range turkeys um, you know, with the uh, people uncertain about their cost of production for next year or for next Christmas. Um, the and the risk of avian influenza until there's a vaccine, I think that there will be a lot of businesses taking a precautionary approach, particularly if they can't see how they're going to make financial returns out of that investment as well. So, you know, the risk is just becoming too great. We've seen that with many horticultural businesses as well, that the planned contraction in production is very, very worrying at a time where we've probably never seen the global disturbance that we have over the past 12 months. Um, and what the, the impact that that's had on, on food production globally, but also um, the resonance that it's had about the importance of food security. And yet we're probably going to produce less food here in the UK over the next 12 months than we did for the last 12 months. 
uh, because a lot of businesses are looking at contracting, particularly in the fresh produce sector, um, but just to reduce the risk to their businesses, because at the moment, the risk is just too high. And so we, we've been able, we've got an answer to one part of the challenge there, which is the seasonal workers scheme. Uh, and we very much welcome the announcement for the 45,000 visas that came just before Christmas with potentially another 10,000 available. But that's only one element that those fresh produce businesses are dealing with. Uh, and yeah, again, the transparency and fairness in the supply chain. We've become used to uh, annual negotiations within a lot of these supply chains or, or a negotiation for the length of a flock, which obviously is about 18 months within the um, laying sector. But that's, that's suitable for periods of very low inflation. But when we've seen inflation running at over 30%, those annual negotiations simply don't work you've got to be able to cut past that cost of um, or those cost in increases along the supply chain uh, and with those annual negotiations that simply doesn't happen so i think we've had a model which has been uh, predicated upon low inflationary pressure and while we're in this high inflationary period and this incredibly volatile period we need to make sure that buyers are cognizant of the threats uh, and that um, members and, and producers are, are are fully rewarded for the risks that they're taking and moving a little bit away from the politics, probably onto farmers' favourite subjects. Obviously, the weather's been the other major discussion point. Um, you know, over twenty twenty two. I mean, take us back to to your own farm and to your members over the heat wave in in the summer and the impact that that had on you. I know, and yeah, it's quite incredible, isn't it? That we ended up with not much below average rainfall in Essex, where I am. I mean, it was slightly drier than average, but um, yeah, it, it was made up of incredibly wet periods and incredibly dry periods. And it's um, as we went through harvest, I mean, our winter crops were about average, actually, maybe just a fraction down on average, but our spring crops were quite poor. Uh, and they really suffered from from not having enough moisture during their growing season, whereas the the wheat crops have got their root down, roots down, and uh, were able to access uh, far more moisture. Um, you know, that's a picture which I think is replicated across the country. That um, you know, the yields for the arable crops probably weren't as bad as people feared, um, but they have you know, been highly variable depending on soil type and exact moisture. But the extremes of temperature, I think, are what really will people remember twenty twenty two for. Uh, and those the, the wildfires around London, which is something that you just simply don't expect. The stubble fires, the machinery fires that members were having on their farms. And it's um, I think as, as farmers, we're on the front line of climate change. And sometimes we it's very easy to forget that. But I think a summer like 2022 really makes us recognize that actually the climate is changing. And if you went back, 2018 was a pretty extreme year as well. Um, and so I, you know, we, we do have to recognize that the, the climate is changing and that as farmers, uh, we're in a really fortunate position that um, we are one of the solutions to climate change if we get the science and the, and the evidence right and we can store carbon in our soils and we can uh, be more resilient at the same time by, by building our organic matters. So but I think that it's a real wake up call that, um, and if you were at the Oxford Farming Conference last week, I think climate was probably right at the heart of what was being discussed and climate change. And I, I think it's, it's very difficult to challenge that it's actually happening, but it's how we as farmers can mitigate the challenges for our businesses, um, but also provide the solutions for others. Yeah, no doubt that's going to be something on people's minds as they head into 2023, if we're, you know, potentially going to see a repeat of, you know, similar things either in 2023 or in the year, years ahead. So the, the other big event that's going to define 2022, you know, for, for us all in agriculture as well as for Britain generally I'll show you the addition 
but uh, is is the death of Queen Elizabeth the second, and obviously the royal family's got so many links to to agriculture, both uh, Queen Elizabeth and, and King Charles in particular. You know, we don't know the links. I mean, how was that you know received at the NFU and amongst your membership? It was just an incredibly poignant moment, Alex. That um, you know the. Uh, the country was able to look back on the life of the late monarch and, and celebrate what a fantastic life she had had. Uh, I mean, the changes that um, she would have seen through farming uh, across those generations is, is quite unthinkable across those decades. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it's it, I think it was a moment clearly for reflection, for remembrance. Uh, and I, I, I think as, as a whole, the country and London you know, did, did, the, did the country proud with the way we were able to, to mark uh, what was such a special occasion and, and it was really filled with incredible sadness but also I think huge pride in, in, in what the Queen had been able to do during her time on the throne uh, and it was um, yeah met with you know Minette gave a, a fantastic tribute and um, it's uh, yeah I think something that I think anyone that was anywhere closer to that period in time will remember for a long while to come and like you say Prince Charles taking over uh, King Charles, you now taking over the throne, has had such a, a close relationship with, with farming. Uh, and uh, now it, it'll be uh, Prince William who, who takes over the reins of the Duchy estate and, and will be responsible for how that develops moving forwards. But um, it, it's great that they have that grounding with farming and, and, and the land and, and understand what it means. And uh, uh, yeah, we will see how. What, what policy ambition or what ambitions they have to, to, for dealing with the, 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 some of the challenges moving forwards. Uh, but it's certainly a packed agenda and it's one that knowing that they're close to is going to helpfully help us for the future. Thank you to Tom. Now the farmland market is traditionally seen as a safe haven in times of economic and political instability. So what has been happening in the farmland market in 2022 and what's going to happen in 2023? I've been finding out more. Yeah, my name's Charlie Payton. I'm a director at Savills in the um, National Farms and States team. So um, we cover the whole country working with our regional teams, um, looking after farms. I, my sort of principal focus is on more on the commercial farmland sector. So we're as a team, we sort of cover farms and estates, but I have a, more of a focus on the commercial farms, um, probably with a focus sort of north, east and southeast of the country, where more of what we would say are the commercial sort of um, high value cropping areas, largely arable um, based farms are. So that that's really how uh, you know, my position and, and I've been here for 15 years. So I have a pretty good knowledge of what's happening in the marketplace. And obviously we're at the beginning of a, a new year, so we're taking a bit of a look back at what's happened in 2022. Do you want to give us a, a brief overview of uh, what you saw in the farmland markets in 2022? Yeah, I mean, 2022 was a really positive year. I mean, the supply was slightly up. We saw 130,000 acres coming to the market. Um, on top of that, there was, there was quite a large proportion of transactions done off market as ever we normally see about 30 percent um in addition that is done privately uh, and i suspect that last year would have been in line with that um but it did i mean there were certain areas where we saw huge increases in supply and other areas where we saw huge drops so i mean a bit of an example um east midlands saw a drop i think of of 32 percent on on where it was before uh 
and and then in, if we're looking into East Anglia, that was a 62% increase. So whilst generally supply is slightly up, it's very, very um, sort of depends on area. West Midlands had the lowest supply it's ever had since 2004. So it, it, it sort of, in all of all of the areas, um, we could definitely do it more. There's definitely demand is out um, out doing supply at the moment, um, but positive um, growth in mark in values. So we saw generally prices um, increasing across the board about eight percent, but that that varied hugely. Um, I mean, East of England saw some big increases. Prime arable land now average values are over ten thousand an acre. Um, uh, there was a big drive for sort of land that was suitable for environmental um, marketplace, which is becoming much more of a focus area, albeit in, in England it's always quite difficult just due to land constraints, um, but the, the marketplace there is becoming larger. So some big, some big deals done, some new buyers coming to the market, the, still the, the same trend of buyers that, that farmers are do make up. Um, a large proportion of it, but I would say um, uh, what's really driving values at the moment more is is still those uh, rollover buyers, tax-driven buyers for development proceeds or other company sales, as well as I say the, the longer-term institutional investors who are coming back into the market. Um, they see land as very much in the in the world that we're in at the moment. It's a safe haven. It's always counter-cyclical. So when everything else is is uncertain, land becomes ever more interesting, and it's about just tangible nature of it, security, security of the asset class. It's generally tracked at about one percent above inflation. I think we'll continue to see that, albeit it hasn't done last year, but it was a bit of an abnormal year. So I think that yeah, a good year, very good year, um, and we're hoping much more of the same. The the real thing from our perspective is that there's at the moment a bit of a shortage of supply going into 2023. And you mentioned there about, you know, the the economic situation at the moment and how that relates to, to the land market. So so what we're going to see from that going into 2023 is, you know, we're looking at recessions and all the um, inflationary pressures on the market at the moment. Mm. Yeah, and I don't, I think that that actually what's happened and it probably is Brexit as well as everything else is actually people have also become much more focused on um, you know, the UK producing land for its uh, food for, the, for its own use and becoming a bit more self-sustaining rather than importing everything with all the uncertainty around that and all of the, the costs involved. So I think we, we don't see, there are concerns over income and loss of subsidy support, um, but against that supply is still short there are still many reasons for buying and actually those that we are seeing in the marketplace whilst there is concern probably in the 2023 harvest because we've had such a the last two harvests in terms of returns to farmers have been fantastic 2023 some may do very well but it will depend on when people fixed in on their input um prices and buying so if if they've done that and have sold well and can continue to sell well then again it should be another good year in 2023 but there are also concerns for some that it might be quite difficult and obviously there are certain sectors poultry pigs etc that have been um, hard hit but generally the buyers that we're seeing 
are looking long term and saying, well, actually, you know, land has to be a good thing to own and not make any more of it, which is our old sort of typical agent comment. But it's true. Um, and, and food security, as well as all the environmental opportunities that land ownership may present in the future, which are still unknown, will outweigh necessarily the concerns that, that people may have short term. And who are the buyers that are in the market? You mentioned a bit about institutional um, investors and, and the environmental drivers. Who are the people that are in the market for buying farmland? I mean, it still varies and, and we can't, it, farmers are still very much a large portion of the marketplace, but that is going to become, there is obviously concern over interest rate rises um, and a lot of farmers that are buying. I mean, give you a stat that, um, I think on average, the uh, farmers have about 11% of their leverage on their farm. So um, it pretty much um, all own without much debt in the farming sectors. But a lot of farmers that have been buying historically have done so on the basis of leveraging against their assets. Um, I think that will become more of a concern because of higher interest rates, serviceability of said debt. So whilst farmers are still you know, largely a factor certainly in probably the smaller acreages the bigger acreages we've seen generally the same uh, same buyer trends as we've seen for a number of years rollover buyers are a huge part of um, the marketplace that that could become more tricky because of um, you know, what's happening in the housing sector developers are probably likely to to slow things down when it comes to land acquisition and development so they may um sort of fall away over time but there's still quite a lot of pent-up demand there from buyers that have a period of time within which to roll over their proceeds and at the moment very few opportunities to do so um the 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 sort of long-term investors private high net worths um and institutional are buying with a with a view to it being a sort of uh, a good hedge against more volatile assets in their investment portfolio um and it's not just inher it's not inheritance tax. It is it is just looking at it as a nice, safe uh, asset that will probably, as I say, track above inflation long term. And and they see opportunities in in land ownership. I mentioned through food production and alternative uses. Um, and then over and above those two sort of sectors, we're now seeing some funds coming in that are looking at. Um, regenerative agriculture, looking at um, alternatives for environmental uses for land, so that the fund side is is a new uh, a new entrant that we're seeing. And the problem with quite a lot of these funds is they want scale, they sort of need because in most other marketplaces they can get the scale. The UK farmer market we've always known is so tightly held that actually getting the scale that the funds need is is proving quite difficult. And what about regional trends? I'm thinking particularly maybe for our listeners who are in Wales or in, in Scotland, in the devolved nations, are there any regional trends to be aware of? Well, um, we did, uh, we're just about to release our cross-sector um, piece at the moment. And across all of UK property asset classes, they think that the two, two best performers over the next year will be poor livestock land. And retail warehouses and the reason poor livestock land is is going to perform so well is you know they see it that it is it's the environmental opportunities so 
carbon side of things, carbon capture, um, in general natural capital opportunities, tree planting, etc. And that will be particularly focused um, actually in Wales and Scotland because England is um, is always there's so many constraints over land use within England, particularly in the areas where that the land might be suitable. So, i.e., north of England, the sort of the, the more hill ground. Um, because of national parks and other issues over sort of bird protection etc means actually we're probably going to see much more growth in those asset classes in Wales and Scotland where that's where we've seen the real investment in the recent years particularly Scotland um, but we have seen some in Wales from these bars looking at environmental opportunities because of the, the lack of constraint versus England so I think we were predicting just to give you an idea I think they, they, the, the thought is that we'll see growth of about 8.4% in poor livestock land over the next 12 months. And I wanted to ask, well, we, we, you touch a little bit on the environmental side of it, but on diversification, which is a big, you know, big buzzword around the industry, I think it has been for a number of years, is that driving any kind of purchases or, or trends? Are there any trends in diversifications that you're seeing? Um, not real trends. I think there's um people are making the assets work harder than they used to and um any it's sort of working out in terms of diversification what is at this moment in time what do you want to be looking at do you want to be looking at um redevelopment of buildings for commercial sort of rural office space or or residential um people are always looking at it because it's it's about income returns when we know agriculture has always produced low returns um and if you can find alternative use of buildings that does increase returns i think where where the sort of the diversification side of things is is proving pretty positive at the moment is the renewable sector so if anyone is fortunate enough um to have any renewable uses on their farms um i think they incomes going to increase on those and there is more focus certainly i mean i'm seeing quite a lot of sort of large-scale solar farm applications going on but i think diversification is always someone something someone should look at because it's it just it it protects your asset even more because if one sector is struggling then actually at least if you've got a diverse farm with some commercial some residential and agricultural income then if one's struggling then one can balance it i mean the residential market is predicted to slow as everyone knows and generally i think they outside of london um expectation is that values may fall by 10 percent in the next year but actually probably rents will be completely opposite and we're likely to see more people looking at renting rather than buying so if you've got a residential portfolio or the opportunity to create one to hold and act as landlord then i think that you know, actually will become a really good income stream rural office space um probably might be a little bit dif more difficult at the moment just with the change in working attitudes but um that said there's certainly more people moving out of the cities to work in rural locations so um you know whether it's sort of more versatile office use and sort of individual desks that people let out for just getting away from home then that could be an option as well excellent and maybe if we just finish off with you know if you're somebody who might be looking to put your farm uh, land onto the markets in 2023, what, what should you be thinking about? Um, well, I mean, I would say this, wouldn't I? But um, 
I, in my mind, I would do it sooner rather than later if you're going to do it this year, because at the moment, as I say, there is a real shortage of land out there and we're not seeing huge tracks coming forward in the springtime. Um, so I think now is as good a time as any. Mark, prices are as high than they've ever been. Um, the the tax position in terms of cross in the sector is as good as it's going to be. Um, it's likely that we will see increases in in CGT rates in time. Um, what will happen with inheritance tax? I don't think anything in the short term. Um, but it, again, that may be something. Um, and so if you're looking to do it, get ahead of the game because we know that the market, to my mind, it'll depend on what it is and where it is, but it's not going to just continue to, to go up. There are headwinds ahead um, in front of us, no doubt. And, and it wouldn't take a huge change in supply just to sort of change the balance in the marketplace. But at the moment, um, there's some very, very good buyers out there that are really driven and motivated to do something. And that's in all sectors of the country and all, all natures of land. Um, so make sure that you're you're fully prepared. I mean, the key we always say to, to, to sellers is it's the more that can be done in terms of getting your farm ready for sale, in terms of documentation up to date, everything looking as it should, it will pay dividends in the future. So um, lots of planning, speak to accountants, speak to your lawyers um, about sort of various scenarios. And if if we can come out and give you any advice, the advice doesn't cost anything. And we're happy just to have a conversation, even if it's not something that, that one wants to make a decision on right away to, to be sort of, to have, have an understanding of what the marketplace is doing and values and their and options will will help with the, hopefully those dis discussions within the family thank you to charlie in this week's edition of farmers guardian we've got all the latest news from the oxford farming conference and the oxford real farming conference and we'll also be keeping you up to date on the government's latest announcements on its support for energy bills that's it for this week on Over the Farmgate, but next week we'll have a special episode for you coming from the Lama Show. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye for now. Mm -hmm.